So one of my roles as a parent is to hear cases that are brought before me by my children. It's like I'm a judge in a small claims courtroom. And the plaintiff comes in and the defendant walks in. They both present their arguments to me. She gave me a dirty look while she went in my room when I told her not to. I sit and go, hmm, okay, I'm gonna consider this. She forgot to close the door to my room. She played with my hair. She called me a bunch of bad names. She locked me in my room. A lot of the time, the judge's verdict is, you know what, you're both wrong. You're both operating outside of the expectations that your mom and I have for you. You're both not acknowledging your parents' wishes for you. Well, in the same way, Paul spends a good amount of time in Romans 1, 2, and 3 pointing out to the church that both the Jewish and the Gentile Christians are outside of God's will. And if you read through the list of offenses that he gives in chapter 1, and then also his restating mankind's shortcomings before God in chapter 3, you see that a theme keeps popping up, and it's the theme of not acknowledging God, not giving God the credit and the honor and the worship that he deserves. Well, today, we're going to look for this theme in these verses. And then we're going to ask ourselves, what does acknowledging God, what does giving daily worship to God look like in our lives. Now remember when we looked at chapter 1 a few weeks ago, we said that Paul was setting this trap for those who think that they're better than others because of their status as Jewish Christians. Well, as we read this description again, I want you to listen for how many times their lack of worship or their lack of acknowledging God is mentioned. Here's what Paul says. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds, animals, and reptiles. So, God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. And so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it was foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand 
break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. So refusing or forgetting to acknowledge God's will seems to be a key underlying attitude that affects all of these other offenses. In chapter 3, Paul gives them a mixtape of references from the Hebrew Bible of examples of our failure to live up to God's standard. He says, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. There are about six Old Testament references that Paul gives here. And I want us to take a minute and go back to Psalms and Isaiah, where they come from. And I want us to listen to them in context and see that, again, the underlying cause behind all of this immorality is an unworshipful attitude toward God. So check these out. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. My enemies cannot speak a truthful word. Their deepest desire is to destroy others. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with flattery. O God, declare them guilty. Let them be caught in their own traps. Drive them away because of their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. I said to the Lord, You are my God. Listen, O Lord, to my cries for mercy. O Sovereign Lord, the strong one who rescued me, you protected me on the day of battle. Lord, do not let evil people have their way. Do not let their evil schemes succeed, or they will be proud. become proud. The wicked are too proud to seek God. They seem to think that God is dead. Yet they succeed in everything they do. They do not see your punishment awaiting them. They sneer at their enemies. They think nothing bad will ever happen to us. We will be free of trouble forever. Their mouths are full of cursing lies and threats. Trouble and evil are on the tips of their tongues. Their feet run to do evil, and they rush to commit murder. They think only about sinning. Misery and destruction always follow them. They don't know where to find peace or what it means to be just and good. They have mapped out crooked roads, and no one who follows them knows a moment's peace. The Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm, and his justice sustained him. He put on righteousness as his body armor and placed the helmet of salvation on his head. He clothed himself with a robe of vengeance and wrapped himself in a cloak of divine passion. I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. Even on their beds, they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course and do not reject what is wrong. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. So in these passages, you get sin and failure and rebellion and waywardness. You get distance between creation and creator. And you get this deep desire for God, the loving parent, to see his children come together and love one another. But the final words from God we need to remember isn't, oh well, everybody's rotten, I guess I'll never see those morons again. It was a good run, but that's all we got. God doesn't say that. Instead, you hear him saying, he himself stepped in to save them with his loving arm. You get, you care for people and animals alike. You're the fountain of life, a light by which we see. And that's the story of the whole Bible, by the way, in case you're wondering. God making a way for his lost children to find him and to be with him once again. In Egypt, Israelites, they're slaves, and God rescues them so that they can meet him out in the wilderness, so that they can be with him and acknowledge him and worship him. And this is where Paul is going with all of this, too. He's not just making lists of rebellious actions and making everybody feel ashamed and bad about themselves, but instead, he's leading them to this opportunity to return to the Lord and in worship and acknowledge him once again. And not doing that by never stumbling or not making any mistakes or doing any of these things that Paul lists in these chapters. It's not achieved by flawlessly keeping the law of Moses. Paul makes that very clear. But instead, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Jesus is the way back to God. And so what do you do once you get back to the God that you've drifted away from? You worship him. You acknowledge him. You live under his lordship and you honor him with the way you live your life. Sometimes when we talk about worship, we only think of one thing. We sometimes equate worship with singing and we'll say things like, oh, it's time for worship. Oh, you know what that means? It's time to stand up in the church and sing church songs. That's worship. That's part of worship. Sometimes we equate worship with an event. We say, oh, you know, worship starts at 1045. So worship is that thing that we do on Sundays at 1045. But it's more than that. For the Old Testament prophets and psalmists, and for Paul, worship is just the creation acknowledging its creator. It's something that we're all called to do each day. Our lives, our actions, and our choices become the praise songs that we offer before the Lord. Listen to how Paul puts this in Romans chapter 12. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then 
you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Okay, so what does acknowledging God look like in our lives? I kind of hesitate to answer this question because if I say, well, it's these five things, you should go and do these five things, well, then we're right back to where the Jewish Christians in Rome were, trying to justify ourselves by keeping the law, by obeying all the rules and checking things off all the lists. It's less of a do all these things on this list kind of thing, and it's more of an attitude of the heart. It's a desire to be with God once you understand just how much God wants to be with you. And it's allowing God to be involved in your life and collaborating with him in every area of your life. Here's some examples. It might just be making godly choices. You are worshiping God when you stop and ask yourself, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? Or how would Jesus have treated someone or respond to this conflict? Or when you ask yourself, what's the best way to honor the Lord in this situation? That's a way of acknowledging God. And when you refrain from participating in some kind of behavior uh, for the purpose of honoring God, doing something that you think God would rather you do than something that's harmful or destructive or outside of his will, that's worship as well. Another way to acknowledge God in your daily life is just letting people know that you follow Jesus. It's when you share Jesus, when you tell people about Christ and invite them to know him too. That's worship. Giving money to support the mission of the church is an act of worship as well. In Dave Ramsey's financial peace course, he talks about budgeting. And he says, budgeting is simply telling all of your dollars where you want them to go. You dollars, you go toward savings. You dollars, go toward bills. You dollars, you're for groceries. Lisa and I, as long as we've been married, we've always designated a minimum of 10% of all of the money that comes into our hands. We designated that to the church. In a way, we're kind of following Dave Ramsey's instructions, but we're kind of not. Because we say, these dollars, these we don't get to say where they go. We're going to let God and the church decide that. That's just been a rhythm that we've kept. And so giving is an act of worship as well. Praying, obviously, is an act of worship, but there's different ways that you can do this. When you give your prayer requests, when you let people know what's going on in your life, when you acknowledge that you have limits and needs and that you need God's power and intervention in your life, that's a way of saying, God, I need you. So prayer requests is one way. Also short prayers, those prayers that you pray in your car. Oh, Lord, thank you that I made this yellow light. I really needed to today. Sometimes when I'm out on my bike, uh, there's this busy intersection that's right on uh, when I go over 580 on Springtown Boulevard. And the bike lane's here, but then I have to get to here, and there's all these cars merging and trying to get home uh, on the way. It's really scary. I've never been hit, but I feel like if I'm going to get hit on my bike, it's going to be in this spot. <clears throat> so pretty much every day, once I have made it through, once I've found the window and I've gotten to where it's safe, I just say a little prayer. I say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for protecting me. Thank you for making a way and for another day with no crashes. Uh, sometimes if you have a really good day, I just stop and I go, man, Lord, this has been an awesome day. We were quarantined on Lisa's birthday this last Saturday, but we had a really good day. We had a great time with some good food, some good laughs. We played some family games. We were able to shove the kids off to, to watch a movie so Lisa and I could have some adult time alone. And it was great. And I was just thinking at one point during the day, man, thank you, Lord. This is such a blessing, acknowledging God in just those short moments when you realize that they're happening. But also there's times of prayer where you can acknowledge God in these extended visits with the Lord. 
Jesus did this in his ministry. He would always leave his work or his social atmosphere just so that he could be alone with his father in a time of prayer. Sometimes he would do this for hours at a time. And for us, that might be the prayers that we pray before a meal, like a designated time of let's bow our heads and acknowledge God before we dig in. It might be at the end of a phone call with somebody. Say, you know what, let's just pray about that, the things that we talked about uh, before we hang up. Maybe it is doing like Jesus did and carving out that time to just go and sit in stillness with God. And sometimes it might involve us doing some talking, but it should also involve us doing some listening. Maybe it involves reading scripture and listening for God's voice in his word. But the purpose is to go to be in that relationship with God. My two-year-old Leah is always the first one up in the Parnell house every single day. We call her our little rooster uh, because she wakes up most days between 6 and 7 a.m., way before the rest of us, uh, and then she comes and she gets me. I'm her first stop, and she leans in and she goes, Daddy, Daddy, I'm hungry. I go, okay, and I wake up and I, we go downstairs and we change her diaper, get her some cereal, and we're sitting at the breakfast table together. And it's just me and Leah. And the other day, we were sitting there, she looked at me and she sighed and she said, oh, Daddy, I love it when it's you and me together. Oh, my heart melted and I said, you know, I love it too. But I was thinking about that. I feel like that's how God feels about spending time with you. Taking those moments of prayer or when you just sit in silence admiring the beauty of a new day or the, the magnificence of creation or thanking God for the breath in your lungs. Those are those moments that God likes to share with you. Hey, you know what I realized? A lot of these things that you're mentioning that are worship sound like the kinds of things we do in our worship service. Well, hey, that's true. Praising God, praying, giving, confessing our faith. Exactly. Worship gatherings are an opportunity for us to acknowledge, to worship God together. But they also do something cool. They teach us what we ought to be doing on a daily basis. They're a way of recalibrating ourselves to be in line with the heart of God, our Father. But a lot of times in our lives, we're going so fast that we forget to make this time with God. And our acknowledgement of God goes into autopilot mode. Our attitude can very quickly become, oh yeah, yeah, me and God, we're good. I got the cross on my neck. I got the Jesus fish on my car. The Bible's on the shelf over there somewhere. But before we know it, weeks and months have passed and we haven't acknowledged God outside of church in any specific kind of way. Well, that was one of the issues that the churches in Rome had to deal with. Jewish Christians thought that their circumcision, an outward sign of their commitment to God, was this ironclad proof of their right standing with God. But, as Paul points out, there came along these uncircumcised Gentiles who became followers of Jesus. They acknowledged God better than the Jewish people did. And Paul says it's like they are circumcised, even though they're not really outwardly. Well, this is a good reminder for those of us whose faith in Christ tends to slip into autopilot mode. Here's what Paul points out. This is Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 28. For you are not a true Jew because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, 
it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God and not from people. So this is a good passage for us to stop and do a bit of self-reflection. And maybe examine some of the family rhythms of your household and ask ourselves questions like, is my heart right with God? Do I have a changed heart like he describes, the changed heart that seeks praise from God and not from people? And ask yourself, what are some ways that I acknowledge God outside of the worship service? That's a question that I asked last week. I asked you guys to send me photos of ways that you acknowledge God when we're not gathered in worship, just in your daily lives. What does acknowledging God look like? And I was going to take all these pictures, and I was going to make a slideshow. We were all going to be so inspired. But here's what happened. I got very few responses from people. And that's okay. Life happens. Uh, And I was wondering why, though. I thought, well, maybe it's because acknowledging God in your life is, is a hard thing to boil down to just one photo. That's probably true for a lot of us. Maybe for some of us, it's because we're still cultivating these practices in our daily life. It's a, it's a work in progress, and it's not ready for the slideshow yet. But maybe it's something that's easier for someone else to affirm when they see it in your life. Now, the kid's memory verse for this month is John 3.30, where John the Baptist says about Jesus, He must increase, I must decrease. This is kind of John's whole thing. John the Baptist, from the start, has his heart that seeks praise from God and not from people. And he is constantly treating himself like a big arrow sign. And he is constantly pointing people to Jesus. If you look at me, you need to see Jesus. If you look for for wisdom from me, I'm just going to point you to Jesus because he's the one that you should be following. Well, that's what a worshipful life looks like as well. It's the kind of life that shows people the way to Christ with your your joyful spirit, with your attitude, with the way that you deal with problems and adversity in your life. It's It's a way of being like John and saying, man, my life is in Christ. You'll see Jesus if you see me. And I've seen a lot of people in this congregation who have that attitude, who've inspired me, who have shown me what Jesus is like. And so I want to tweak the challenge a little bit. Didn't get a lot of responses last week, but I'm hoping for 100% participation this week. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell somebody how their life points people to the Lord. And I'm going to make some space for us to do that right now. I want you to take the last few minutes of our worship gathering here, and I want you to text or email or handwrite a note of encouragement telling someone how their life, that's their words, their actions, their attitudes, their choices, how all of that points to Jesus. And I'll say, you can't do it for me. I'm going to exempt myself from being a recipient of this. It's too obvious to tell the preacher that he talks about Jesus. I already know that. I want you to think of somebody and encourage them with your words by saying, man, you point me to Jesus. And be specific. Tell them how they do that, what things in their life, what attitudes that they show represent Jesus. And let's be encouragers of one another now.